WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. We've all heard the statistic that by the year 2050, the global population is projected to hit 9 billion people, and we'll need to vastly increase our food production to meet that demand and feed the world. Today, we're here with Caitlin Daza. Caitlin, can you please introduce yourself for us? Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, My name is Caitlin, as you said, and I currently am a PhD candidate in the Department of Animal Science here at Michigan State, and I work with Dr. Kathy Ernst. My research focuses on understanding the genetic control of uh, meat quality traits and animal growth traits in pigs to help support our animal agriculture industry and keep it thriving into the future. Thanks for joining us this morning, Caitlin. Now, how do you take that idea that you just described to us and study it in a laboratory setting? My research actually has two distinct uh, phases to it, so two different parts. Um, The first part of my research was actually all on the computer. Previous scientists, uh, researchers before me at MSU, actually collected tissue samples or samples of muscle from our population of pigs. And we were able to obtain tons of information from those samples, including their DNA sequence for each of our pigs, information about the expression of genes, so like which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off, um, and all sorts of other characteristics about the pigs, like how fast they grew, how big their muscles were, I use all of that information and essentially do a bunch of math. So I use statistical models to understand if there's a relationship between the DNA sequence and the expression of, in my case, a microRNA. Wow, that's really cool. You're looking at a bunch of different information. You said that you were looking at DNA sequence and microRNAs. Now, What does this mean? Like, why are these so significant for you to look at? We always think of our genome, right, our entire sequence of DNA as the instruction manual of life. Genes, which are a lot smaller, they're shorter segments of your genome, are like paragraphs in that instruction manual. MicroRNAs, I call them tweets. They're really short. They don't make a protein like a gene would, so they're not a full paragraph, but they can really influence how those genes are expressed. We call them the fine tuners of gene expression. So what we're trying to understand is how those microRNAs are fine tuning the expression of genes in our pigs and seeing how that affects things that consumers or people who eat pork care about, like the quality of the pork, how juicy it is, all of those excellent characteristics that we really look for in an excellent piece of pork. We think microRNAs help affect those traits. You just listed a bunch of these different attributes that people would look for in when it comes to good meat, or in your case, pork. But what sustainable trait is your lab interested in exploring when it comes to the genetic information of these pork? So the great thing about working with tissue samples that have been taken from an animal is that we can actually extract that genetic information. We can take that really cool DNA sequence and all of those details 
and use that information for a really long time. So there have actually been probably five or six graduate students that have worked with this group of pigs and asked a ton of questions about what is going on at the genetic level in this muscle. Our lab has previously focused on things like how fat grows on the animal. Um, my work specifically is interested in a microRNA that we think might be affecting how fast or how big the muscle itself grows. So you said that you and your lab have identified a microRNA that can determine how quick a muscle will grow. Do you double check this in the lab with muscle cells that you're getting from these different pigs? So right now, we, we think we have a microRNA that might be involved with uh, controlling how the muscle cell grows. What we're actually doing to confirm that is I'm using cultured muscle cells, which means that these are actually muscle cells taken from mice that I can grow in a lab setting. And I can actually go in and turn off or on the microRNA that I'm interested in or the genes that I think it's fine-tuning to actually see if what I think might be happening is really happening in this muscle. If you receive samples of these different pigs, is it possible for you to isolate the muscle cells from them and then perform experiments on them like how you're doing with the mice? Yes, that definitely is possible. Um, that's actually called a primary cell line where you take muscle cells or whatever cell type you're interested in and you take that from a sample you've collected and you grow up those samples themselves. The problem is those can be a little bit tricky to keep growing. So what I'm using is actually an established cell line. So these are cells that people have used for many, many years globally, right? So worldwide, not just at Michigan State. And they're very stable. So they're very good at growing and being mouse muscle tissue. I think it's really interesting that you're doing these comparisons, both on the computational side, as well as on the wet lab side. But could you elaborate a little bit more on how you actually study these genomes via this computational technique? Yeah, so with the computational side of things, we were talking about the genome being this instruction manual, right? You can also think about your genome or the DNA sequence being like a map. So we know that certain genes live in certain places on that map. What we were able to get from these pig tissue samples, these muscle samples, were essentially like markers on this map. So like when you're driving down the highway and you see those little road markers, the mile markers, you can think of those in our case as something called a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. These act as markers that let us know where in this DNA sequence we have differences between our animals. I like that analogy you made about SNPs being like markers on a map. Now, you said that you were comparing this in different animals. How many animal samples are you getting? Like, how are you getting this data? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So we have tissue samples from the loin muscle of our pigs, and this population actually had over 170 animals in it. So these were pigs that we specifically bred to have differences in the size of their muscle 
or the amount of body fat that they had. So we would expect them, if they look different, to be different on a genetic level. We use the SNP markers to see the differences in the genetic sequence between our animals and make associations between those differences and differences in the expression of microRNAs. You're looking for these different genetic markers in these pigs, but I'm wondering about how these pigs are actually gaining these different genetic attributes. Are you involved with the breeding of these pigs? Is it happening by selection or is it happening via some sort of in vitro process? My advisor, Dr. Kathy Ernst, worked with a team of other geneticists in the animal science department to develop this population of pigs back in the early 2000s. So I wasn't actually there when the pigs were there. But what we did was a common genetic selection method called crossbreeding. So we used two different breeds of pigs. So just like there are breeds, different breeds of dogs, there are different breeds of pigs. We used two different breeds, one that is known for their meat quality, so excellent pork coming out of these pigs, and then another breed of pig that is known for being very lean, not having a lot of fat. We combined these two breeds of pigs together just through um, natural breeding processes to produce a population of pigs that all have these differences in muscle size and meat quality and the amount of fat that's on their muscles or on their bodies. With that, then, we could see that there would be some genetic differences. All right, Caitlin, just to reiterate for some of our listeners that might not be tuning in, you're looking at the different expression levels of the microRNAs in your cells that come from pigs. Those microRNAs will then control the gene expression of them being upregulated or downregulated, and that can affect the meat quality. Depending on how those microRNAs are being controlled, it depends on the characteristics that come upon those pigs that you are all trying to study. But you had mentioned that you were doing this with mouse cells. These cells come from a mouse line. And my question is, how are you comparing mice cells to pigs? Because obviously a pig isn't the same as a mouse, though. So we're actually really lucky that um, a lot of our genetic information is shared across species. So a microRNA in a pig that does a certain job likely does a very similar job in a mouse or a human. Pigs and mice are actually really commonly called model species. So for humans, when we're interested in genetics in people, we commonly use pigs or mice um, as a substitute for a human study. So if a scientist has questions about the genetics of a human, it's very common for them to use pigs or mice as a substitute for that human in that study. So luckily, we were able to identify the microRNA I'm focused on in my pigs also exists in my mouse muscle cells. So although it's not a 100% match, it's the best we can do with the resources we have, and it's a process that most scientists go through when they're doing these types of experiments. When you're changing the amount of expression of these several different microRNAs that you're working with, what other attributes are you interested in studying when it comes to the meat of the pig? 
So my work specifically, I would actually consider it pretty foundational. Right now, we're really focused on just understanding these molecular changes and seeing how that might affect, um, specifically for my work, the growth of the muscle cells and the muscle tissue. From my computational work, we actually found about 15 microRNAs that we saw had differences in abundance or expression between our pigs. My work in the wet lab now focuses on just one of those microRNAs that we think is going to be affecting how the muscle cells grow and divide and how that affects the tissue of the muscle itself. To reiterate what you had said before, you mentioned that you are analyzing that particular microRNA that can control the muscle growth or how rapidly the muscle is growing. Whenever you're looking into this, can you, for example, see like if the mice or the pigs would end up developing some sort of health problem like fibrosis because there'd be so much muscle growing or does it balance out in a proper way that the animal will still be healthy? So I really believe that my research is foundational. My work is really focusing on how this microRNA does its job in a really controlled environment. And in that case, this being muscle cells that aren't even in a live animal in a lab setting. What we learn from my work would have to go through much more research to understand the effects of the expression of this microRNA on a whole animal. The other thing to keep in mind is that microRNAs are fine tuners, right? The other aspect of microRNAs is that they all work together. So understanding the job of one microRNA may not have a very big difference on the entire animal because you have all of those genes and other microRNAs playing a role. Essentially, we would have to do a lot more work before we could say anything definitively about how the job of my microRNA would affect an entire animal. And those are serious questions that we would have to look into. It's a really interesting research topic that you do study here, Caitlin. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today about that. Now, outside of the laboratory, are you involved with any other types of projects that you're interested in or that you have a passion for? Yeah, so I'm really passionate, actually, about helping people understand science. So I really love the work that you guys are doing here because I think it plays such an important role in really helping people understand what scientists are doing and also the fact that scientists are people. A project I'm working on outside of my research is my work with Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She's also a scientist here at MSU, and she hosts a digital web series on WKAR called Serving Up Science. Serving Up Science is an amazing series where we talk about the science of food. So some topics that I've helped with by doing background research are things like is dark chocolate good for you? Um, how are eggs labeled in the grocery store and what do those labels mean? And even the science behind the foam at the top of a beer after you pour it. And it turns out there's science in all of those topics. So it's been a great experience to get to research these topics and help Cheryl make this awesome web series. That's really cool. I've heard of Serving Up Science before and Cheryl is wonderful. There's a lot of great topics that you mentioned and quite a variety of them. How do you find the proper credible sources for all these topics that you're talking about? That's an excellent question because we all know that there is 
more information on the internet than any one person can handle. (laughs) It is difficult sometimes, but I have figured out that there are some really trusted organizations that you can go to. For example, when I was researching, when I was researching the labels on eggs and how they're marketed in grocery stores, I actually sought out articles from the USDA on those labels. So I would try to avoid any groups that seem really in favor or really against a certain topic that you're researching and try and find those good neutral sources. I always like to trust government organizations. And since I'm lucky enough to understand how to read a scientific paper, I look for those as well. But that's why I think it's important that scientists learn how to talk to people, because sometimes scientific language is not the most understandable. I agree. It's really important to be able to take that technical knowledge that's described in these different high level government reports and to a format that's understandable by the general public. And I think it's great that Serving Up Science does that. Thanks again for coming in this morning to join us today, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you guys for the excellent work that you're doing in the same vein, helping people understand science. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on The Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on The Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.